Would you pray with me? Father God, as we consider the beginning of this new year, we consider you who are without beginning. You are holy from eternity past to eternity future. You created a good world for us to live in, and you walked with us and showed us what righteousness and justice look like. You created life, and you sustained it by your presence. But our first father and mother chose rebellion over unity with you, and since then each of us has followed in their footsteps. We confess this morning our great need for healing and reconciliation, our great need for a righteous prophet to point us to you, for a perfect priest to mediate the consequences of our sin, and for a steadfast and loving king to conquer our enemies and to bring us into the kingdom of light. We give thanks for you, Christ Jesus, our King, who is the mediator of a better covenant, who frees us from the chains of the law that we could never break free from on our own and brings us into the fullness of your mercy and grace that we may experience peace and hope in you. We pray, Jesus, that we would hold fast to our rock, to you, that through the sharing of your word, the fellowship of the saints, and the taking of communion, that we would grow more into the image of Jesus. We pray that by your spirit working in us and through us, we would put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience as we embark on this new year. And Father, we pray also for your local church. We pray for Pastor Doug Payne in the Branch Church in Corvallis. As students and members return from Christmas vacation, may it be a time of refreshment and renewal for their congregation. May they be reminded of the supremacy of Christ and have a renewed vision for the gospel. We pray also for ourselves. Lord, we've been plagued in this congregation with wave after wave of illness. We pray for healing and for health. We pray for endurance for those who have suffered and for those who are caring for others who are ill. Be with us, and may these illnesses remind us of our continual need for you. We pray now that you would be with Hans as he shares your word. Equip him by your spirit to give grace to all who would hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, you can have a seat. Today we begin uh, the book of Colossians. And so if you are a person who likes to grab those journals that we provide for you, um, Rachel's standing in the back with those journals right now. If you want to, you can get up and go grab one. Uh, if anybody didn't grab one of the journals, uh, nobody will be upset with you if you get up and go do that right now. If you already got one, that's great. Uh, but you can open up to Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. We're going to cover... A huge amount of text today, two whole verses. <laughs> I am so thankful and encouraged, by the way, that I'm part of a church that loves Scripture and loves gathering together to read God's Word, to practice the ministry of the Word, uh, that even on a New Year's Day, and uh, how awesome was Christmas, right? Uh, this place was packed out. It was pretty awesome. So I'm just thankful to be part of a church and to teach a church that loves God's Word and loves gathering as he calls us to. Amen? Amen? Well, welcome to 2023. I am not sure if it is a product of me getting older or watching Back to the Future one too many times, but I can't believe we're in 2023. Can you believe that? I, the flying cars aren't here yet, so I'm a little upset about that. But other than that, every year seems to just pass quickly, and like an avalanche rolling downhill, it adds to the previous years. Uh, the longer I live, the more I'm amazed at how time affects your 
perspective on the world. When I was young, uh, it seemed like there were great differences between the past, the present, and the future. Time fit into these nice, easy-to-remember categories. To my 10-year-old self, for example, a year like 2023 seemed far into the future, when we'd have flying cars, uh, and an event like a given battle or invention of the past was, long, uh, was etched into this long past history in my mind. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I've been shocked about how quickly that time passes, and most importantly, how no moment uh, in time exists in isolation from all the other moments. We're seeing this even in our own time, how every year that seems to come, we're getting farther away from things like the pandemic or a recession, but then new pandemics and new recessions and new waves of illness and new pol uh, political upheaval happens, and it all kind of rolls on top of each other. Time never stops. It always marches forward, sometimes ruthlessly. And history books, and in the more recent past, photographs and videos, they may capture a moment in time as if it is isolated, but as we experience those events uh, ourselves and then look back on them, we realize that so many other things were affecting that moment in time. It wasn't isolated. There were surrounding circumstances and experiences and contexts and events that happened before and uh, because of what happened in the present. And so when we look at something like a historical book like Colossians, we must be wise and purposeful when interacting with it. When we interact with things of the past, we have to be wise. Uh, for the snapshot in time that we're seeing is not isolated. And so when we read the Bible, we must also realize that what we are seeing and reading is not static. It's not frozen in time uh, in its relationship to time. It was written at a point in the fluid passing of time, and just as time passes for us and affects our reading of the word, time was passing and affected the writing of the word, the author of the word, the original audience of the word. And with each book that we read, we must realize that it took place, yes, in a different time, in a different context, and among a different society. And so to get the contextual meaning of the book that we're reading, we don't read it as if it's an encyclopedia entry. We read it as living, breathing word that affected a living, breathing group of people. We need to understand who it was written by, who it was written to, what kind of literature it is, who was its first audience, what was their context. And if we do this well, we will then see that even though the surrounding circumstances were different, even though it was in the past, there are still inherent truths that have not changed, even with the passage of time over a long span, such as 2,000 years. The local church, for example, is still very much the same. There was a group of people that gathered back then. There's a group of people that gather now. Jesus Christ and his role as Savior, Lord, and King is still very much the same. Do you realize he has not changed in 2,000 years? And so the truths that any portion of the Bible can give us are more universal than we might think at first. And this is especially true for the book we're opening up this morning. To read Colossians well, we must work hard at understanding the surrounding context and point in time in the history of the church. But then we must also realize that while their circumstances and context may have been vastly different than our own, what they were fighting in their day was vastly different than our own, the applied truths of their situation speak to our current age with great weight and importance. And so this morning, it is my joy to introduce to you Paul's letter to the church at a place called Colossae. The book of Colossians, as we know it, was in fact, and is in fact, a letter. It's an epistle written to a local church, a local church that existed in the Lycus Valley of, of Turkey, 
very close to the places we've read about before in Revelation, Laodicea, places like Hierapolis, within the same region as Ephesus. This was a group of people, a small group of people in a small town that met to worship the Messiah. And so this letter that was written to them was a real letter received by real people, written by a real man. And they were wrestling with some very specific contextual issues going on in their midst that we're going to have a hard time connecting with. They were wrestling with things like Jewish mysticism. Anybody in here struggle with that? No. They were wrestling with pagan folk religion. You might say, I don't struggle with that, but you'll see that we do. And they were wrestling with Gnostic heresy. How many of you call yourselves Gnostics? Anybody? Any smart Alex in here? All right. But if we view these things that seem far and distant from us, if we view them through the contextual lens of the day, we will realize that the core of the issues they were dealing with are the same that we're dealing with today. The core issue was mixture of worldly ideas and spiritual novelty with the true gospel. They were wrestling with what we covered a few weeks ago in Joshua, syncretism, mixture of non-biblical ideas with the true gospel. And Colossians is a wonderful book for us to go through in this time because we are struggling with that in a huge way in today's church. Now, Colossians is also an extremely powerful and important letter because it gives us a glimpse into the apostolic church as it was adjusting to the fact that it was somewhere between two and three decades after Christ's resurrection and ascension. A few decades had passed, and it was written most likely in the early 60s of the first century. It was not long after the events of the Gospels and Acts, and so it captures a crucial time in the founding and adjustment of the early church. It's shorter in length, length, as is Philemon that we'll cover along with it, which is Paul's shortest letter in the canon, and it's known for being written to the most rural and least impactful church out of all the letters of Paul. And yet, it gives us a wonderful glimpse into the church's mindset as it moved forward in time from Jesus' ascension. Now, this church was indeed small. But what it gives us is large. The reality is is that Colossians would be very near and dear to us today as if not writing to Salem, but rather writing to maybe independence. It's a smaller place that was not known for anything huge other than its wool trade. There wasn't a lot about Colossians that would make it be a place where Paul would write a letter of importance. But what we gain from it is massive because we see the church changing and adjusting and putting in place foundational pieces of orthodox theology that we hold today and we preach today. In Colossians, we see the church adjusting to a number of issues that were needing to be addressed due to the passage of time slowly but surely away from Christ. The first issue we'll notice is that there was an adjustment in how the apostles were guiding the church with regard to the topic of eschatology. Eschatology. And friends, if you think, ah, I'll forget these words, I don't need to know them, the reason I bring these words up is for you to become theologians. Every Christian is a theologian. So if you don't know this word, write it down, go look it up, listen to my definition of it. I'm trying to teach you and build you up as students, okay? Eschatology is a word that simply means how it views the return of Christ and the end of the present age and transition into the eternal age. Eschaton is end. It's the study of the end times. Eschatology. And This book, Colossians, speaks to a transition in the thought, not a whole different thought, but a transition in the thought around eschatology. In the book of Acts and some of the earlier epistles, you can see that the church was expecting Jesus literally any day after his ascension. We still do that today. It's called the imminency of Christ. It is a foundational belief of the church. 
But converts from the day of Pentecost and Acts were staying in Jerusalem, for example, because they thought Jesus was coming back so soon after his ascension that they didn't need to go home and keep their jobs. And this is why the church needed help feeding all these people, especially as a famine hit. They weren't returning home to their jobs and their land and their families because they were sitting there waiting for Jesus to return, just as you, <clears throat> excuse me, just as you or I would at that time. <clears throat> and so the church's timing on the return of Christ was a bit presumptuous. So while Paul and the apostles were not dismissing the imminent return of Christ, they were also realizing that maybe it might be a good idea to think about this as a long haul, an endurance race. Maybe he's not coming back for a while, even beyond their own lifespan. And so they thought to themselves, what do we do with this? Well, the church would need to exist faithfully and obediently during that time. And so there was a bit of a transition, not a change in theology, but an adjustment of focus. Rather than saying, we have to focus on eschatology, maybe we should start talking about what this thing called the church is supposed to be. And so Colossians is considered by many to be part of what is referred to as part of early Catholicism. Now, this has much less to do with the word Catholic as we know it today, and more to do with the origin of the word Catholic, which means universal. It refers to the universality of the church, the church being across all time and space, and the authority of the church, which came from those designated by Christ, the apostles. It needed to be handed onward to new generations, and the apostles were realizing this as they were going through time. And this started an emphasis on the importance of authority and tradition in the church handed down by Christ and Christ's place as supreme authority over the church. This was the idea of the new Catholicism, the building of the church. And there was an emphasis on what the place of the church and its witness would be amidst the world. And we're seeing this real time in the fluid movement of Paul's words in Colossians. Now, the return of Christ was still in focus. Taking a look, for example, at Colossians 3.4, right there in front of you. 3.4, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the church didn't lose that thought. It didn't lose the idea of Christ's imminent return. But it definitely held it in tandem with an idea of what is the church today. We see this balanced with a focus on the fact, as we'll read, that the kingdom is already amongst the church. Paul will say things like, in Christ, you have been buried, you have been raised, and you have been made alive with Christ. A present idea of what is happening within the church. Rather than simply waiting for the return of Christ, Paul will give us a succinct statement that the church is to witness in the midst of everyday mundane life such as in the midst of family relationships and work relationships. And it will seem very much like Ephesians, which was written at a similar time. We'll see a household code in the midst of it, of how uh, husbands and wives and children and workers and bosses should all relate. Now, this fact that it's like Ephesians made some scholars theorize that perhaps one, either Ephesians or Colossians, was Paul's writing, and another was a copy. Perhaps Colossians was the copy. But I actually ascribe to the theory that this actually shows something different. What Paul was embarking on here was a mission to formalize and centralize a lot of the ideas that were at the founding of the local bodies of Christ throughout the Roman world. Think about this. If he wanted the church to start to become the same in its views, he would send similar ideas to two separate churches, as we see in Colossians and Ephesians. Now, further evidence that Paul and really the apostles and overall church were transitioning from a nomadic group of scattered messianic gatherings to a more formalized universal church that existed across time and space and needed to endure in the midst of a world that was against it. 
And so we'll see this adjustment in end times view, this adjustment in focus and eschatology, um, this underlying movement will be there that we'll see to help the church stay faithful no matter how long it had to wait. Now, what you oftentimes see is an interaction uh, between eschatology and what's called ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. Ecclesiology comes from the word ecclesia, which means church. One is the view of the end times, and one is the view of the church. And oftentimes, friends, you'll see this uh, working in the church. If a church has very heavy eschatological views, they'll have a very low view of what the church is in the present. And if a church has a very high view of the church in the present, almost overwhelming, you'll see eschatology drop away and not even be mentioned. And the, the job of the Christian, the job of the Bible reader, is to hold them in tandem. And this is what they were trying to do, and we'll see this in Colossians. Now, this is an important one for us to grasp today because most Christians have no understanding of the point of the church in the midst of their relationship with Christ. I have heard many Christians in my 12 years as pastor of the church say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't really need the church. Well, today, it's a widely held belief that to be a Christian does not require being part of a church. And maybe even that the church actually hinders the true Christian walk, and you're more spiritual, and you're a better believer if you just kind of do it on your own. The American ideal of rugged independence has been confused as a Christian one. And unfortunately, some of Colossians has been used to back this view because Paul's comments throughout Colossians often hit on a topic called Christian liberty, or not being bound by religious traditions. Now, this message can be quickly twisted, though. Take, for example, the message that Paul says in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Take a look at it there. He says, If with Christ you died the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, we can take a statement like this and quickly pervert it to our own use and come away with a message of, see, religious authority, organized religion, tradition, self-control, these are bad things, and they take our mind off of the simplicity of Jesus. I've actually heard this before, uh, especially as we've gotten more organized and grown as a church in our view of ecclesiology. True Christianity, one might say, is without any rules or regulations or requirement of obedience. And it focuses on this hyper-romantic view of relationship with Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. Without knowing it, we've rolled away from biblical truth right into the heresy known as antinomianism, where we become an authority to ourselves, and it's now just about me and Jesus, a Jesus that I've made in my own image. And throughout our transition to a more orthodox view as a church of ecclesiology, including adding membership, I have heard this argument many times from people frustrated with our organization, with our purposefulness, with our call for obedience. They call it legalism, but friends, it is not. What's missing from this twisting of these texts is that Colossians was meant to oppose a very specific type of religious authority that was driven by a few people who were adding things to the requirements of the gospel and making themselves an authority over and above the word of God, Christ himself, and his church. And in Colossians, this was drawing people away because people who claimed to be Christians were just looking for the next spiritual trend or novelty that would make them feel close to Christ, when in fact they were missing the point altogether of what Christ had done for them and the family into which Christ had called them. And friends, this is still a problem today as well, isn't it? 
the desire for Christian novelty, the next trend in Christianity, the next spiritual high. Christ is saying, don't follow that, but stay faithful in the midst of what I've called you to. To read Colossians accurately, especially in this area of ecclesiology, is to realize that Paul, in Colossians, is refocusing the local church at Colossae on the truth that they have one authority, and that authority is Christ, who is supreme authority because of the gospel of his death, resurrection, and enthronement. And because of that, they were to obediently and faithfully follow his rule within this local body of believers, of Colossae, because it's in that context that their obedience to Christ would be made evident. And so we'll see in Colossians a firm statement on ecclesiology. It is assumed throughout the book that to be a Christian is to be a part of a local church. We will see that the local church is the place where Christ's citizens follow Christ's rule in order to display the truth that he is Savior, Lord, and King. We will see a strong eschatology and a strong ecclesiology. But lastly, and most importantly, and the primary theme of Colossians is that Paul will be talking about the church's theology with regard to the topic of Christology. Christology, And hopefully you can figure out what's at the core of this piece of theology. It's Christ. It's the view of Christ. This is the topic of Christology. In Colossians, Paul will be giving the church one of the most clear statements on who Christ was, is, and will be in the life of the local church and the Christian. Most importantly, Paul will be putting forward what is called the supremacy of Christ. Everybody say the supremacy of Christ. This is the idea of the position of authority and rule that Christ has over the spiritual realm and therefore over the church. Look, for example, at what many believe to be an early creed or hymn possibly used within the church even prior to Paul. Take a look at Colossians uh, 1, 15 through 20. We'll cover this in depth later, but let's just read through it. Speaking of Christ, building a Christology, a very solid Christology for the church, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before, meaning preeminent, before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Paul will make very clear that Christ is everything to the believer. He is where our doctrine begins and ends. He is the one who tells us how to live and how our part in his body, the church, should function. And that is not just an ephemeral idea that because I'm a Christian, I'm part of the church. It's being part of the church, part of the local church. And to stay true to our faith is to hold Christ as supreme over everything in our lives and over the family of the local church. We will see eschatology. We will see ecclesiology. And we will see Christology. You all will become very heady theologians by the time we're done with Colossians. Now you might say, but Hans, I just want a simple faith. Friends, if Paul didn't want you to learn about it, why would he write it to you? All of us need to stop existing on milk, and we need to start existing on solid food. 
I'm hopeful that this church will grow in the midst of our view of God and of Christ through Colossians. In Colossians, Paul is setting a long-standing orthodoxy for the church in these areas. And so for us, as Christians entering 2023, we should be expressing our great gratitude to Christ and to his apostle Paul for giving us the founding truths and principles in this short book from which we can grow in maturity and grace and peace and faithfulness as a church body. Now with that introduction to the book, let's begin this morning very simply setting ourselves in the context of this letter. Because even though we're going to go deep into some theology throughout this book, we're going to take it slow so that we can all learn together. Amen? And so we're going to start with just the first two verses this morning, Colossians 1, 1 through 2. And it says there, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. What we see this morning is a letter from one sent by the king, written to those called by the king into his family to bring about grace and peace in the family of God. And we'll cover each of these ones in detail, but it's a letter from one sent by the king, written to those called by the king into his family to bring about grace and peace in the family of God. The first one that we see this morning, don't worry, I'll hit each of them so you can jot it down if you're taking notes. The first one we see is a letter from one sent by the king in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, I don't know about you guys. Many of you just completed your yearly reading plans, and you're starting up again. But I often, when I read through the Bible each year, I often read these shorter letters in a way that glosses right over their deep and important truths. Does anybody else do that? Anyone else? We forget that these are letters written to address a specific situation and context and specific people. And I especially tend to gloss over which parts of the letter? The greeting and the ending, right? Oh, he's just listing names. Time to move on to the next one, right? Does anybody else do that or am I the only sinner? Anybody else? Yeah, okay. And so we think, well, after all, it's just like our dear so-and-so greetings and letters and emails. And today we might even wonder who needs greetings. Our contact list tells us who's texting us at the moment. And so greetings have largely gone away. I've gotten flack before because sometimes I'll send my, my text and I'll say, hello, so-and-so, and I'll end with dash Hans. People are like, are you writing me a letter? It's a text. Come on, what are you doing, right? I'm old school. <laughs> greetings are just assumed in our day and age. But don't let our cultural oddities dismiss what is being said here. Let's instead slow down and realize that this letter was from a specific man to a specific group of people. It would be like Marcel sending us a video. The specific man that authored this letter is Paulus, the apostle, or as we know him, Paul. For about 1,800 years in the church, there was no debate whatsoever on the fact that Paul wrote this letter. But as scholars started to rip apart Scripture in order to reduce its authority, people began questioning whether it was written by Paul or a later follower of Paul using his name to gain authority. Now, to answer this question, simply, Colossians has been canonized from the very earliest days of the church in what was called the Pauline Corpus, or Paul's body of work. And it was therefore accepted from the earliest days of the church. We have this very arrogant view today, well, that they were kind of morons, and so they would have accepted anything that came into their hands. But friends, the church was a lot smarter than we like to give it credit, and they would not have accepted this as being from Paul unless it were from Paul. And so we accept and proclaim that this was indeed written by Paul the Apostle 
and therefore carries his authority. And this name Paul is important for us because we recognize that this was the name that Saul of Tarsus, the Hebrew, was known by in the Gentile world. Every time we read Paul, we need to remember that Paul was the name he would use in the Greek and Latin-speaking churches of the day. And so this is a reminder that this letter, while originally addressed to one local church at Colossae, is for application in every Gentile church across the world, including our own. And it should remind us of the great grace of God that he stepped outside the Hebrew people in order to reach the Gentile world, and he used his apostle Paul to do so. We also see that Paul had been sent by God to the Gentiles throughout Scripture to spread the good news that the anointed king that the Jews and really all of creation had been waiting for, had been enthroned as supreme. And this is what Paul, uh, this is what the word apostle means. Apostle means one sent as an emissary, a herald, an ambassador by the enthroned king. Paul, as an apostle, saying he's an apostle, is saying, guys, I have the authority given to me by the ascended and enthroned Jesus. This position of apostle is also stated to be by the will of God. God, as ultimate authority, commanded and sovereignly ordained Paul to be his ambassador, to carry his authority. In other words, to not hear Paul is to not hear the one who sent him. To not take this book seriously is to not take seriously the one who gave it as a communique. To hear Paul, to apply Paul's words, is to hold firmly the very words of our enthroned king. Think about it for a second. If you got a letter from a president of the United States, pick one, would you actually hold on to it? Would you at least read it? Maybe you don't agree with their views, but you'd probably read it when you noticed it was on the seal of the president of the United States. Friends, we are getting a communique. We are getting a letter from the one who is supreme over the universe. How much importance should we give this letter that we have in our hands? Notice next that it also says that this is not just an earthly emissary. Paul was not an earthly emissary sent by an earthly king. Paul is an apostle or sent messenger specifically of Christ Jesus. Now again, because we're Christians, we often run right over the top of this. But this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is described clearly and in detail in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But now he is called Christ Jesus. Christ, or Christos, is the Greek word for the Hebrew title of the Messiah. This is the one who had been promised since Genesis 3 to take away the sins of mankind and reconcile us to God the Father. This is the one who was foretold all throughout the Hebrew prophets. And so this name, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, is not a new covenant invention, but rather a connector to the old covenant hope outlined from Genesis to Malachi. Friends, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. We have a letter from Christ Jesus, the Messiah. That's a big deal, isn't it? Now, this greeting is informing us that we must read this short letter as a communique from the ascended and throne messianic king who has fulfilled all promises to his people Israel and expanded the tent stakes of his kingdom to include any Gentile whom he has adopted into his family. Yes, friends, this book has some of the best one-liners in all of the New Testament. One-liners about being alive in Christ, or thinking on things above, or nailing our sins to the cross, or letting the word of Christ dwell in our hearts. But friends, if we approach this book as a one-liner encyclopedia of wisdom, we will miss the entire point. This is a letter from the Christ, Jesus, 
who has been raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Ancient of Days, and is enthroned over the kingdom of heaven. If we are a people that desire to revere and respect and obey our king, we will pay attention to what he is saying through Paul with bated breath. We will not be able to wait to understand and know and apply the words of our Christ. Amen? Now lastly, we see that Paul includes Timothy, our brother, in the greeting. Now these words are hotly debated among commentators and theologians as to why it is there. Why would he mention Timothy? Well, it's possible that Timothy was Paul's secretarial scribe writing the letter and even having some license in wordsmithing it. And perhaps this is why Paul makes such a point in the last verse of the letter that this greeting is in his own hand. He says that at the end of the letter. Or perhaps Timothy was as much part of Paul's ministry, uh, so much so that where Paul went, Timothy went, and so it became normal for Paul by this point to do this. Or perhaps more likely still, and this is the perspective with which I agree, perhaps Paul is trying to lay out the fact that others will need to take on his mantle of authority. Remember that this letter is primarily about the supremacy and authority of Christ above all the spiritual realm and above the church. And remember, as I already noted, that this letter displays a bit of a transition point in the thinking of Paul and possibly of the apostles as a whole, in which the church is no longer just those who had been with Christ and his apostles, but it's spreading more and more broadly, more universally, more catholically, if you will. And so the foundation and order of authority needs to be put in place as well. Now, it's a rule of nature that as something grows more complex, it requires more organization. Any of you who go from one child to two child or uh, two children or three children, right, you know you need more organization. If nothing else, you need a minivan, right? It requires more boundary setting. It requires more organization. Otherwise, it is complete chaos. Increasing complexity, complexity and anarchy do not mix well. And so those who are against organization and order and authority will spend their lives jumping from chaotic situation to chaotic situation. But Christ and therefore Paul are agents of order, not of chaos. For remember, Christ came to destroy the chaos monster, Satan himself, and install his orderly kingdom. Now, if you think I'm pumping up type A personalities who order all their Tupperware, that's not my point here, right? This is not a matter of organization in your kitchen. This is chaos in creation versus God's good order. And so what Paul is doing in mentioning Timothy in the greeting is passing the mantle of authority, if you will. He's trying to give order to the church and saying, hey, Timothy carries as much weight as I do. Just as Christ passed his mantle to the apostles, they now pass it to others to enable the expansion of the kingdom of Christ. We see this in great depth in First and Second Timothy and Titus. We'll see the same thing in the closing, as Paul notes others who are to be trusted and respected in this tiny little church as they spread the gospel. And you see this carry on in the church today, uh, or sorry, throughout church history as well. One of the most well-known examples of this apostolic lineage or passing on of the apostolic authority was Christ passing his authority to John, John to a guy many of you have heard before named Polycarp, and Polycarp to one of his disciples named Irenaeus. Now, St. Irenaeus was one who famously wrote a work called Against Heresies, which is full of orthodoxy that we still hold today. And so the goal of the church is not to just randomly jump in and say, you know what, I've been reading the Bible and this is what I think it says. But it's to interpret it within the orthodoxy of the Christian faith because we stand on the shoulders of men and women who went before us and have a lineage all the way back to Jesus. The Pope doesn't get to claim the monopoly on that. If we interpret the word of God correctly as it was intended to be interpreted, 
in other words, how the original authors wrote it, we stand in the apostolic lineage of Christ. And so part of what we see in Colossians, which begins even in this greeting, is that Paul is intending for the church to expand and grow and for the orthodox faith to be passed on to those willing to hold fast to the truth of Scripture. Scripture properly interpreted in a way that shows what the original authors meant. Now, in this way, our interpretation holds true to what Jude called the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't privately interpret it to center on ourselves and what it means for each of us. We would then be rewriting the intent of the original author. We rather interpret it according to the original author's intent and purpose in the original context, and then we apply it to our own context and our own lives. And the reason that we can be assured that when we go to apply it, it will apply to our lives is because it was written to those called by the king into his family. It was written to those called by the king into his family. This was written to a specific group of people called by the king into his family. But the principles and the themes and the theology that it lays out can be passed on to every generation of Christians called by the king into his family. Look at verse 2 where it says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Paul notes first that this is written to the saints. The word is not a special group of Christians that have performed miracles and been canonized by the Pope. This word in the Greek is simply agias, and it means those that have been set apart. This is one of my greatest debates with some of my Catholic friends. How on earth could Paul be calling every member of the Colossian church a saint when the Pope didn't even exist and canonization didn't even exist, right? He must mean something else. So Paul is a saint because he was set apart for the work of proclaiming the gospel. Timothy was a saint because he had been set apart for the work of the gospel. But notice that this is sent to a whole local church of Colossae because they, like Paul and Timothy, had been set apart, made holy by the justification of Christ's death, made alive by Christ's resurrection, and through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into the body, they'd been given the purpose of proclaiming the gospel with their lives and fellowship. Friends, that is what a saint is. It is not a perfect Christian. Now, this is furthered by the phrase, faithful brothers. It's important that we remember that in most languages around the world, to state the male plural is to include the female plural as well. So Paul is saying here, faithful brothers and sisters. And this is said in the same breath as saints. Friends, to be a saint is to be faithful, loyal, covenantally strong in the family of God as brothers and sisters who have all been adopted by the Father and linked eternally with one another and then called to obedience through the household rules of the Father's household. Our intention is to display the gospel by how we exist in our family unit as the local church. And because we are temporal and finite and limited, we cannot display this practically as part of the local church in Burkina Faso, or in the Philippines, or in Indonesia, nor can we even fully display it with sister churches in the NCN, or even with churches across town. Our ability to display the gospel is shown in how we relate to our brothers and sisters in the local church in which we now find ourselves. Friends, this is the context in which you obey Christ. This is the place where you practice the one another's. Yes, you should be practicing it with other churches as well when you run into those Christians. But friends, those relationships are easy. These are where obedience is built, where sanctification happens. 
Just as we simply cannot jump into a new biological family when we have struggles in our own, we are called to covenant faithfulness and, and a dogged desire and determination to display the gospel in our own local church. We are called, as we will see in Colossians, to work through conflict, to repent, to forgive, to reconcile as God would have us, so that we might fulfill our calling as saints who have been set apart from the world to display a love and sacrifice of self that we can only engage in because of the love and sacrifice of the one who has called us, who has saved us, and who has drawn us into his family. And so in one sense, we, like the Colossian church, are located temporally, physically. Just as they were at Colossae, we are at Salem, at Mission Salem, in our local body. But then notice that not only are they located in the local church at Colossae, but they're also located in Christ. How can they be, be in a title? Can we be in the president, in the principal? To be in Christ is to belong to him as the source and king over the new covenant and the age that it's initiated through his death and resurrection. It is to know, engage in, and cherish your place as a citizen under his loving rule in the family into which he's called you. As we read this letter, we should purpose to remember that these same designations, friends, saint, brother and sister, faithful brethren, at Colossae, in Christ, these are designations that are true for you and for me. As you read this, this is not just true for these members of the church at Colossae, they're true for you as well. Brothers and sisters, have you let it sink in that you are a saint, a faithful family member in Christ in Salem? Have you let it sink in that you have been chosen, selected, and installed as one set apart for a specific purpose in life? That's what a saint is. Have you let it sink in that you are set apart from those around you for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel through your words, your sacrifice, your participation in the body of Christ, and your love for those around you. That's a saint. Have you let it sink in that you have been set apart by God to mirror the laws and ideals of heaven through the way you relate to the brothers and sisters in this local household of God's greater family? Friends, he's not just talking to somebody else. He's talking to you, the saint. Have you let it sink in that you are called to be a saint? Brothers and sisters, do you know that you are located in two places at the same time? You were first physically here in Salem, in the local body of Mission Fellowship. This city, Salem, is the mission directive you have been given as the place to engage your purpose of proclaiming the gospel. That's why we're called mission. But then you're also co-equally located in Christ. Your citizenship is first and foremost in heaven under the authority of the King of Heaven. Friends, these are massive identity statements for you to grab hold of. And this is reinforced by the fact that we have in these two short verses the imagery of a citizen, of citizens, of a kingdom ruled by the anointed king, the Christ, and the imagery of children in a household led and disciplined by a loving father, a loving father God who has adopted us as his sons and daughters. Brothers and sisters, is that how you view this church? Is that how you view one another? When you see one another around town, do you think, oh, that's a person that attends the church building that I attend? Or do you think, that's my brother, my sister. We've been called into the same family. Brothers and sisters, is this how you view the church? 
the elders of this church, the brothers and sisters around you? Do you view us as a family? Or do you still view the church as a place to attend or a producer of a spiritual product to consume or a group to participate in only as long as you feel like it? If so, my prayer is that Colossians will inform a different view in your life. I pray that you will let conviction take root if that's the case. That you will fully engage your identity as saints, as faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Salem. Now, as we go through Colossians, you will be reminded of this twofold position as we're called to constantly remember the gospel and the love and sacrifice it displays as the law of heaven, as we're called to think on things from our own home country of heaven, not our place of temporary exile here in this foreign land. And so as we do so, I'm hopeful and I come with expectation that the reading and applying of the book of Colossians will do for Mission Fellowship what it was intended to do for the local body at Colossae. It was intended to bring about grace and peace in the family of God. Grace and peace in the family of God. Paul gives a very usual and repetitive greeting that we see often in his writings. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. But let's pause for a moment so that we don't gloss over even this. In using these two words, grace and peace, Paul is speaking to both Old Covenant and New Covenant believers, both Jews and Greeks. The word in the Greek, charis, or grace, was a usual greeting in the Greek world. The word peace in Hebrew is shalom, or irene, in the Greek. It was a usual greeting in the Hebrew world. And Paul is stating in shorthand the gospel truth of the entire Bible. The grace of God, his sovereignty, his sovereign voluntary choice to step into mankind and make a way for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with him, his grace is what will ultimately bring about shalom or peace in which creation and its creator is brought back into perfect oneness and stability. In one sense, we have already each been given this by the already present effects of the gospel. We have been forgiven, justified as righteous, adopted into God's family, and reconciled to him and one another all by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But in another way, we are now waiting for the not yet present effects of the gospel as we long for and pray for the full return of Christ to very tangibly rule over the redeemed and renewed creation. But remember, friends, that our job is not to usher in the fullness of his reign through political, legal, or social action. We are, we are to wisely engage in these areas as God has called us because it's the right thing to do, but none of these will bring in the fullness of the true kingdom. What we know our job description definitely is, every single person who claims to be a Christian, our very purpose is to fulfill our role as called out ones, meant to show the world what the kingdom of heaven is like by our very lives and relationships. Just as Jesus provided a view into the kingdom of heaven through his ministry prior to his death, we are to provide a similar view of heaven by our obedience to the commands of Christ and the love for one another that comes as a result. Now, this is not a romantic, fleeting, emotion, and experience-driven love, but a purposeful, covenantal, self-disciplined, and faithful love that stands the test of time and experience. And the only way to stand firmly in that call, friends, is to stand firmly in the gospel truth and the orthodox faith that has been handed down to us by the apostles and faithful faithful men and women throughout the last 2,000 years of the church age. The measure to which we stand firm in the orthodox true gospel in the grace of Christ is the measure to which we will see peace amongst those who are truly his. When we forget the gospel, 
when it starts to stray from our focus and view, when we forget the supremacy of Christ and we let ourselves inch into that throne even a little bit, peace will start to fall away. Shalom will start to fall away. Even our earliest reading, if our minds are stayed upon Christ, upon God, we will have peace. For Colossians will show us this in a great way. One of the best parts of Colossians is how it will model for us the hard work that all of this that I'm describing entails. For Colossians and its close connection to the short letter Philemon will give us a glimpse into the ups and downs of the local church in a different way than any other epistle. We know from the fullness of the book and its connection with the history laid out in Acts that the church at Colossae was not started directly by Paul. In fact, Paul had never even visited them. Instead, it was most likely started by a man noted in both 1.7 and 4.12 as Epaphras. Would you look there with me in 1.7? 1.7 says this. Uh, it says, Just as you learned the gospel, the grace of God and truth, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Look again at 4.12. Look at 4.12. He notes in his closing, Epaphras, who is one of you. He's in the church, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, in other words, he'd come to Paul by this point, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Perhaps he was even an elder of that church. In 1.7, it says that he was the one who initiated this small fellowship of believers. He was the apostle to Colossae, in other words, bringing the gospel as a disciple of Paul. But then it's intimated that he is also the one who has come to Paul pleading for help to counter the mixture of earthly ideas that is twisting the gospel among the church at Colossae and causing conflict. And so Paul's purpose in writing Colossians is to assist Epaphras in his desire and prayer that there may, as it says in 4.12, that they may, as it says in 4.12, stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. In other words, the church was acting immature, with a bunch of conflict, not listening to their elders, and Paul was writing them to say, stop it. <laughs> Raise up Christ as supreme, remember the gospel, and be mature in your faith. We don't need that at all, do we? No, I need it every single day. I don't know about you guys. Now, this is another way of saying that the church at Colossae and any who read it may, may grasp the grace of God in the gospel so much so that it empowers us to bring about the evidence of shalom or peace in our midst. That's what Paul hoped for the church at Colossae in the midst of conflict and debate. And that's what I hope for our church as well. Now, this was not an easy task. For in the midst of their congregation, they had two brothers and friends. They were probably a smaller church than us, maybe 50 people, maybe less. And they had two brothers, one a slave and one a slave owner who would need to reconcile and overcome their relational conflict and make great sacrifice for the cause of the gospel and the good of the church. For in 4.9, in 4.9, we're introduced to a gentleman named Onesimus. He says in his closing, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? He's a member of the church. And they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Onesimus, we will find out in the book of Philemon, is the slave, Onesimus. And Paul will call them, Philemon and Onesimus, quite clearly to take the truth of the gospel and apply it to their lives as saints, those set apart to model the tenets of the kingdom of heaven and reconcile as brothers, a slave master and a slave 
both brothers in Christ, members in the same body. You think we have problems when we have conflict. My goodness, can you imagine this? Can you imagine what impact this had on the church at Colossae? Now, this would require the sacrifice and forgiveness of Philemon, the repentance and forgiveness of Onesimus, and courage on both of their parts to build a new relationship not based on their own emotional capacity to love, but on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to the call of Christ, to be faithful brothers under the watchful eye of the Father God. This is powerful stuff. We are seeing real-world Colossae. We are seeing what was happening at this time in this church through these two small letters. In, these, in this intertwining of these two letters, we will get a glimpse into the fact that the barriers we face in the church today were no different than the barriers Paul faced in the church of his day. But more importantly, we will see that the solution that Paul relied upon to bring grace and peace amidst the church is also the same that we look to today, lifting up Christ as supreme so that each of us might lay our lives down to serve him in obedience, regardless of the sacrifice. And in so doing, proclaiming the gospel that he died for, that he rose to preach, to the surrounding world and the spiritual realm. This is powerful, powerful stuff, guys. I pray that as we go through these two books together, God would reignite a fire in our hearts and minds to be the faithful church he has called us to be, a church that faithfully proclaims the true and orthodox gospel, a church that gladly submits to the lordship and supreme authority of Christ and the authority he has delegated to us in our care for one another, a church that models the truths of the gospel in the way that we interact and love and reconcile when conflict arises, and a church who can call the world around us to know the same grace and peace that we know because we know and hold dear to the supremacy of Christ in our lives. Brothers and sisters, as we engage in these two short letters, would you please commit with me to making it a priority to go through this with this church? Would you commit to daily praying that you and I and our surrounding brothers and sisters would be made to stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Would you pray that Colossians has an impact on this church? I look forward to what Christ will have for us in the months ahead as we go through these books. Let's pray that the Lord will do so in our midst. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that when we get to read these epistles, we are not reading just a dusty old encyclopedia of proverbial thought. What we're reading is a letter between living people, a letter that you have initiated by your will and your spirit. And so we read this this morning, even this greeting, not just as a greeting from Paul to the church at Colossae, but from, a, from you, the king of the church the head of the church, to your people, from the Father to his children. And Lord, we pray that we would interpret it rightly, that we would hear it correctly, and that we would apply it correctly to our lives. Lord, I pray for this church and for every member here today, and even those who aren't here who might be listening online later. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take on these identity statements of saint, brother and sister, of faithful brother and sister of those in Salem, just as they are at Salem as they were at Colossae, and those that are in Christ. Help us to hold on to these. Help us to look inside ourselves and understand whether or not we have taken on these identities or we have shoved them aside, thinking that they're not for us. Lord, help us to be a group of saints. 
Not perfect people who are made righteous because of our own merit, but people who have been set apart by our king for a purpose, and that is to preach your gospel with our words, our devotion to you and to one another, and our love for one another. Lord, help Mission Fellowship be a place where we preach the gospel every moment of every day in all of our relationships. We ask, God, that you would do these things powerfully by your Holy Spirit and that you would initiate this work in each of our hearts and in our heart together as a church, beginning today and lasting from here into eternity. Help us to praise you well as the one supreme, high and lifted up, above this body, your church, as the head of this church, as the king that reigns over us as citizens of heaven. Help us to praise you now in that way as we sing to you and as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.